This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Navigating Parkinson's disease can be challenging, but we're here to help. Welcome to the Michael J. Fox Foundation podcast. Tune in as we discuss what you should know today about Parkinson's research, living well with the disease, and the Foundation's mission to speed a cure. Free resources like this podcast are always available at michaeljfox.org. Hi, welcome to the Michael J. Fox Foundation's Parkinson's podcast. I'm Larry Gifford, a proud member of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council, founder of pdavengers.com, and host of another podcast called When Life Gives You Parkinson's. I am excited because my podcast pal, Rachel Dolan, the SVP of Medical Communications of the Michael J. Fox Foundation, is here with me today. Hello, Rachel. It's great to be back together, Larry. Oh, my gosh. They can't keep us apart. They try, <laughs> they try, they can't do it. Dynamic duo. That's right. Today, we, we do have a, uh, a sensitive topic we're going to get into about cognition, and we've got some great guests. We have Melissa Armstrong. She's an MD and MSc. So she is the Associate Professor and Associate Chair of Faculty Development Director, University of Florida, Dorothy Mangurian, Clinical Research Headquarters for Lewy Body Dementia. Whew, that's a mouthful. Uh, she takes care of people with Parkinson's and related cognitive changes. Uh, she's with the Department of Neurology at the University of Florida. And we also have uh, Pamela and Dana Bland. Uh, Pamela is a person living with Parkinson's and she's having some cognitive changes. She's 71 and has Parkinson's for 21 years. She has been a nurse and an educator. And she and her husband, Dana, live in Donellan, Florida, or just outside of Gainesville. All right, so we have a full house. We have Dana and Pam and Melissa and Rachel. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Happy to be here. All right, so Rachel, let's let's you and I start here. Um, you know, this is a sensitive topic uh, that's kind of hard to talk about. I want to make sure I'm respectful. Oftentimes I get a little goofy, so you got to rein me in, okay? <laughs> I'll do my best. Michael J. Fox wrote in his new book, a Parkinson's condition I rarely contemplated before now, much less spoke of is cognitive change, loss of memory, confusion. What am I thinking and, and how am I doing? And, and frankly, he speaks for a lot of us in the Parkinson's community that, especially when it first starts to happen, you're like, oh, is that Parkinson's or is that me getting older? And and how do you notice the difference and, and how do you maneuver through that? So I'm going to I'm going to start with you, Rachel, and we'll probably bring in Melissa, but like, when, when do you know that it's actually part of the Parkinson's disease instead of just old age? Well, I think exactly like you said, it's such a sensitive topic and it's so hard to talk about for people with or without Parkinson's. And people tell us so regularly, though, that this is one of the things that they really worry about, that people with Parkinson's worry about, that their families worry about. And we sort of do a disservice by not talking about it. So as much as we can, you know, as comfortable as we can ever get with this tough topic, it's so important to talk about it. And that's why I'm so glad we're having this conversation that we have people who are joining us to talk about their experience, because the more we can open up this dialogue, the better we can get at tackling these tough issues and, and having these regular conversations with loved ones and with our doctors who can help us along. So let's bring in Dr. Armstrong. Melissa, let's just start at the very basics. What is cognitive issues or a cognitive decline or a, you know, a cognitive problem? How do you define the cognition? 
Well, when I talk about it in Parkinson's, I really like to use the term memory and thinking because that really captures that when we, when we think about memory and age and thinking, we also often focus on that memory piece of it. But when we think about cognition, it's a lot more than memory. It is how do we multitask? How do we pay attention to things? How do we you know, understand where objects are in space? How do we use our phones? So when we think about you know, cognition, it's memory and thinking. And so Melissa, cognition or memory and thinking, they can, they do change naturally with age, right? But then they also can change with Parkinson's. So how do you know what's what? Well, that's a great question. And I think as with so much of Parkinson's, it can be hard to know for sure. But we do know that there are some things that happen commonly in Parkinson's. So multitasking, what I mentioned earlier, is a great example Parkinson's makes it harder to pay attention to things, makes it harder to multitask, doing more than one thing at a time. And so if someone tells me that they're noticing those changes, I'm pretty suspicious that they could be, at least in part, Parkinson related. Dr. Armstrong, I'm having those problems. (laughs) (laughs) Multitasking was a superpower of mine for so long. And now if I get distracted by one thing, it takes me like 15 minutes to get back on track and I get lost in like these, somehow like, how did I get here? And what am I doing? Like I lose time throughout the day and where I used to be able to knock off a list of 20 things. If I get three things done a day, I feel pretty good. (laughs) And we can all have trouble multitasking at some times, but you know, when you change from your superpower to struggling more, you know, we wonder if Parkinson's is part of that. Yeah. Pam, I'd like to bring you in here. Uh, Have you noticed this type of stuff? Yes, I have. I I identify exactly. Um, And it's it's not always happening like we think it's supposed to happen. I I can recall one time where I was scared to death because my phone wasn't doing what I wanted it to do. And I, I've had, had a, right now I'm having a problem with talking and it, it comes and goes and I have to kind of go with it. But I have a partner who is very, very, how can I say it? He, he's very much pay attention to everything I do so he can tell me with, if I'm doing right or doing, not doing right. And I appreciate that. Parkinson's, people can fluctuate, have times where they're you know, thinking or talking better and times where they're thinking or talking worse. What you describe is you know, exactly what we see. What can people look for? I mean, is it medication wearing off? Is it not getting enough sleep the night before? Is it stress that kind of takes you on this up and down with the cognitive changes sometimes? So there is some of that that seems to be inherent to the Parkinson's. The Parkinson's makes you go up and down. But some people notice that they feel better after they take their medication mentally, not just physically, and they feel worse mentally when they're approaching the end of dose. If you didn't sleep well in Parkinson's, everything can be affected. And medication, some of those over-the-counter ones can really have an effect. 
the most common, diphenhydramine or Benadryl, it's in a lot of those over-the-counter sleep aids, can really hit people with Parkinson's hard, confusion, grogginess. So it really is a combination of different things. Well, I think I, I noticed that they do print on every medication of it, and it's happening again. I can't, he usually talks for me because I can't talk at all right now. Oh, you're doing great, Pam. You're doing great, Pam. Well, what do you have to say? Everything contributes, like she doesn't sleep well. And a couple of years ago, she she was healthier, but she, her mother, our mothers were passing away basically about the same time. That stress level really kicked up and it kind of made things much worse, wouldn't you say, Pam? Yeah. And it, on my side, I don't want to tell her every little thing to do. I mean, she's a smart, intelligent woman. I mean, she's, you know, she's in charge, but you don't want her to fall down either. It's kind of, where's the line that you're nitpicking and being helpful? I mean, that's kind of a, a blurry line. And I'm, my personality is, I'm not a very patient person anyway. So <laughs> I need some modifications, I guess. I'm, I'm learning slowly. Dana, when did you first start noticing some cognitive issues with Pam? Well, a couple of years ago, maybe. Slight. Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. That's excellent, Pam. <laughs> I started writing, Pam used to take care of all the bills. And I've been writing the bills now for a couple of years. And like appointments, and like I've noticed like, um, like even this appointment today, she's to be confused. Well, is it 11 o'clock? No, Pam, this was at three o'clock. We'll talk to you guys. And it's kind of, what do you think? Then it's confusing, would you say? Or? It's a, a lot of things there. Confusing. Confusing? Confusing that weren't confused before. But yet you yeah. also want them to let them maintain their independence. So it's so. a... It's a fine line, I guess. Yeah, I, I, f I find it gets very difficult if there's extra noise in the room or distractions or like mm -hmm. if there's the TV on and somebody's talking to me and my son's over there doing playing with the cars. I'm like, okay, we got yeah. to oh, turn something that's, else that's, off because I can't, I can't bring it all together. And that's one of the things I really talk a lot about in people I'm working with with Parkinson's, with some early changes, even when it's not affecting every aspect of your life, it's that multitasking and attention that can really happen early, but we really rely on that in day-to-day -day life. And so some of the early strategies I talk about with people are just what you say. If you have an important conversation, you know, you wanna be in a quiet room, no TV, no radio, no phone, no kids, eye contact, really talking about, you know, if, if it's a work issue or a marriage issue or a family issue, making sure that you're optimizing the chances of having a really good conversation. And to do that, you often need to strip away all those distractions. It, it's funny. Have you ever tried to cook dinner and you're slicing a cucumber and, you, and so, somebody asks you a question and I stop slicing the cucumber to look at them to answer the question or, or like I'm giving my wife a foot massage and she'll ask me a question and I'll stop. And she goes, don't stop. <laughs> But speaking of conversation, Melissa, because you have some really good pointers there about, you know, talking one-on-one, -on -one, minimizing distractions, having a quiet room, all those sorts of things. Talking about this, no matter if we get rid of all the distractions, isn't easy. What kinds of tips or strategies do you have for people to talk about this with their loved ones? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a, a real challenge. And I think gets to the point of how important it is for us to be honest in our relationships in general. And this really is in both directions. And this is to your point, Dana, too, that, you know, it's hard. Where is that fine line between, uh, you know, taking over and helping people's independence? 
you know, there's also that fine line of, you know, what do we talk about? How do we talk about it? Who initiates the conversation? Some of that will depend on your marriage, but I do think it's important to be honest with yourself and people in your family about what you're struggling with, because that really gives an opportunity to figure out, well, what could we do practically in day-to-day life to make this situation easier? Well, and one of the things that is really hard to talk about and really hard to, to do is to uh, admit that maybe you're not the best driver that you used to be uh, and that maybe your reaction times aren't the same as they used to be. And uh, I, I've, I know I've discovered that and uh, my wife does all the driving. I take cabs to work or transit to work um, and uh, I, it's just not worth the risk. Driving is a really hard one for a lot of people. It's a way that we have our independence. We get around. We're used to doing what we want to do, going where we want to go, when we want to go. And especially if you don't have a a good public transportation infrastructure in your city, it can be really, really hard to, to let go of driving. And so that's often a big thing for people and their families to talk about when is the right time? What are the things we look for and, and how to go about switching from not to, to not driving? Pam, uh, what's your experience with that? Well, Dana didn't really tell me I couldn't drive, but he did. A few times I'll pass Pam in town. I don't mean it's meanly. I mean, her head's like locked on straight ahead. You know, when you drive, you have to kind of look around like a, like a cat or something. I wouldn't have a problem with making small trips like a couple blocks away or something, but it's, uh, I don't think you want to drive the temple from here. (laughs) I think driving is a really good example of how when people live with Parkinson's, it's the physical and it's the mental. So we know that your physical ability can affect your ability to drive, but there's a lot of mental in driving. To your point, Dana, you have to have that multitasking where you're looking all around I mentioned earlier that Parkinson's can affect your visual spatial reasoning. Where is your car? Where is the next car? Where's the curb? And so it's a really good example of how Parkinson's is complicated and it's physical and cognitive together. And those two things together make it especially difficult. Well, and if you have the radio on and if there's people in the car talking and if, you know, and, and, and. This is one that needs a lot of conversation and it needs conversation between the person living with Parkinson's and the family and the doctor, because sometimes yeah. you really do need the doctor to be the bad guy there. Well, well, see, that's that. Let's talk about that a little bit because the doctors will take away your driver's license at certain points, and I think it's different for state to state, country to country. But um, you know, what, what's your experience with that, Doctor Armstrong? As far as what 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 would be a trigger? You know, there's some research that shows that none of us are perfect at predicting when is the right time to start driving. There's a little research that says that families are probably the most accurate. But if I have worries based, usually it's based on the physical and the cognitive, then I bring it up and discuss it. And I really emphasize that we want to stop driving before something terrible happens. And just to be clear, um, Dr. Armstrong, you don't like physically go in their wallet and take their driver's license because I don't want people to be afraid that, you know, their doctor one day is just going to say, hand it over. You know, this is a, this is a conversation and this is something you're doing in the best interest of that person, you know, do no harm, right? Of that person and their family. Yeah. And it's not usually like a moment. So often as 
Parkinson gets more advanced, we'll start talking about, you know, how is driving going? So I'll ask that at every visit to get a sense and also so that people are watching it. And then if we start to get worried, if you've, you know, had two fender benders since the last appointment, then we'll talk about, well, what is the best approach for you? You know, I'm worried because some of what I'm hearing sounds like the Parkinson's is affecting the driving. I don't want something really bad to happen. How do you feel about giving it up? And if they're willing to, you know, they have a spouse who can help, they're in a place where there's public transit and they're willing to say, look, I'm, I'm willing to, to stop now, then we'll go that route. And if the person with Parkinson's says, this is really important to me, I depend on this, I want this, I don't wanna give this up, even though my spouse is worried, I know I'm a safe driver. Then I say, you know, I don't know, you don't know, why don't we have an evaluation? But it's a process, it's not a moment. And there are lots of conversations and discussions about it. What are some other things that people may experience as their uh, cognition declines? Sometimes we do talk about memory and the memory problems in Parkinson's are different than memory problems that can happen with some other diseases like Alzheimer disease. So in Alzheimer disease, which is totally different than Parkinson's, you have trouble making new memories. So you might not remember you know, what happened in the morning. But in Parkinson's, you can usually still make that memory, but you have trouble getting at it. And so people with Parkinson's can often benefit from cues or reminders because the memory is there. You just need some help to get at it. And so those can be useful strategies for people with Parkinson's. I feel oftentimes when I'm telling a story, it's more like charades. I'm like, it's that guy that looks like this with the thing and the ears and the, and then my wife will go, oh, Joe. I'm like, yes, yeah, so Joe. Is <laughs> and I think it's important to stress too, that it's like everything in Parkinson's, it's different for different people. And so, you know, one person might have a lot of that word finding difficulty. Another person might have, you know, more uh, changes they notice with attention. Um, so it's different for different people. It depends on your situation, your work, your your life situation and that sort of thing. But there's also, Melissa, maybe you can tell us a little more. There's really a broad range of changes that can happen in Parkinson's. So it can be from the most mild, you barely notice it. We just caught it on our testing that we did in the office as doctors to much more significant where it really impacts our daily life. That's absolutely right. And it's a gradual thing. So it's not something people usually notice overnight. You know, it can start subtle, you know, oh, I can't remember that darn word. You know, then it gets a bit more prominent, more trouble multitasking. And just like the movement problems of Parkinson's, the mental, the cognitive problems can gradually get worse, but usually it's slow. But if you live with Parkinson's long enough, it can become a bigger and bigger problem until it's really affecting everyday life. And so we, we, you know, we call it normal thinking. And then there's this mild cognitive impairment stage where you're noticing changes, your testing isn't normal, but you can still do most of what you need to do. And then dementia is the medical word that says your memory and thinking have declined enough that it's having a major impact on day-to-day -day life. And that happens in Parkinson's too. Pam, when I was telling my story, I saw your head shaking. Does that feel familiar to you playing charades when you're trying to have a conversation? Yes, <laughs> yes. I do that all the time and Dana, he does it too. Oh, so you have to give me a better, more clues. You have to give me more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> but that's also a good point too, Larry, because you mentioned something about how, you know, if you're tired, it's yes or no questions, or it's one of two choices that sort of don't give me open-ended oh, questions. Oh yeah, after so, 4.30, no open-ended questions. So it's really this balance, again, back to that conversation, back to figuring out there's a lot that your care partner or your spouse can really help with as far as moving communication along. Yeah, what, what, what are the best techniques for, a, for a, a, a spouse or a partner to support their loved one? I think that's, that probably varies a lot from person to person and relationship to relationship. And just like, you know, everyone with Parkinson's is really unique in the experiences. There are a lot of differences between different marriages. And I think that affects how people with Parkinson's and their spouses relate or how people with Parkinson's and their kids relate. Um, so I think some of those communication strategies are born out of the relationship that you already have. I do think it's important for, you know, family and friends to be patient, you know, so when those words aren't coming, don't add to the pressure, you know, wait, let it come. Things are slower in Parkinson's and allow space for that. Being supportive, being helpful. Dana, to your point, you know, finding that narrow road of being helpful, but not overprotective. And that's not a single answer, right? It's not like you like you know exactly what that is. That's a bit of a moving target. Yeah, it keeps it's like chasing smoke. You like, am I doing this right, or maybe I'm maybe I'm doing too much or too little? You never know. And you know, Parkinson's we just talked about it changes over time, and so. Right. You know what what the best way to support today it may be a little bit different in three months or six months or a year and so it's it's constant readjustment we've we've been parent married for 35 years i think so and, um, it is changes all the time now life everything and changes. it doesn't always get better it just gets different and one of the things we can't neglect to mention as a care partner is taking time for yourself. I know we always say it and it's one of those things that's so much easier said than done. But Dana, talk a little bit about how, how you do this, how you manage time away, but also still taking care of, of Pam. I live in a great spot to be outside. And a lot of my friends, we cycle riding bicycles a lot. Not enough, but uh, so I, like Tuesday night is bike night. So we go out and ride a bike for an hour and a half and Pam's feeling good. We go all go have something to eat and it's good. It's mainly Tuesday. It used to be Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, but that's, you know, so things have kind of dialed down, but it's, it's still good. You have to get away. You have to find your peace. I was out last Tuesday night and I was going along. I'm trying to erase the day. You're just trying to clear my mind and feel better and it feel, you know, it feels good to get outside. Yeah, outside's uh, really, I think, a, a, a great thing. My wife goes on hikes in the morning. She'll drop off Henry at the school and then she'll stop and go for an hour long hike just so she can have her, her me time before she dives mm -hmm. into the day. And I think that's really helping her a lot, uh, just sort of have her space and time, listen to a podcast or call a friend or, you know, and I'm real supportive of her doing different workshops and stuff that she wants to do or go out with her friends and it's ever changing. It's funny. I was, I was thinking about what Dana and Pam were saying about how communication uh, after 30 some years is, is changing. And we've been married 21 years. And there are some days where it feels like we've been married six months. Like we are just not on the same page at all. Like the, the old communication things that we had, like we, we could just look at each other and know what each other was going to say. And now we are so off base. Sometimes it's, 
it's so frustrating because it's like three years ago we were fine and now like i we're not even on the same street let alone in the same house they don't know like like, we'll just take a break i'm like okay this is not working right now for whatever reason we'll we'll revisit this but we do we we are both communicators by trade so we we talk a lot and we're very honest with each other and we have that sort of the brave space where we can tell each other things that are hard to tell each other uh without there being a a reaction or you know it's like this is the time where we're going to talk about this and it may sting, but breathe through it. And then let's talk about it. When we talk about, you know, care partners taking a break, I think it's important to acknowledge that there are, you know, when Parkinson's really starts to affect memory and thinking severely, there are going to be people with Parkinson's and memory and thinking problems who can be at the point where they cannot be safely at home alone. But it's still really important for those families and caregivers to get a break in those circumstances, but you have to be more creative. So that can involve having family members come over for an afternoon or an evening or someone from church coming over to share lunch, or sometimes it means hired caregivers. So it gets more challenging when the person with Parkinson really shouldn't be home alone, but it's still a really important thing to figure out. I was just wondering, is there any way to, uh, is there medicine or is there any activities that you can do to strengthen your cognition? Like, can you, can you go back the other way once it starts going downhill? Well, I think there are some things that the research supports that we can try to help. There's not too much in Parkinson's that goes backwards, but there are still many things that we can do. So physical exercise is really important. And there is more and more research showing the physical, the benefits of physical exercise in Parkinson's. And a lot of that research is about, you know, the physical part of it, but there's some research that suggests that uh, physical activity can help thinking too, and Parkinson's and outside Parkinson's. So I do think that physical exercise is important. We do usually encourage quote unquote mental exercise, staying mentally active. I'll say the research is a little bit more divided on that, but it isn't probably going to hurt you. And so staying mentally active in many different ways is something we often encourage. Uh, There is one FDA approved medication for memory and thinking in Parkinson's. It's called rivastigmine. Um, And I would say we do often use that when the memory and thinking problems are more severe, but it's not a miracle pill. I want to mention diet too, because people always ask about diet and it is, you know, this is advice nobody wants to do, right? Eat well, exercise, <laughs> sleep more. You know, it's, it's hard no, to bring do. It on. I like restrictions. <laughs> but the Mediterranean diet, which is kind of more fish, less processed, less sugar, less like we usually eat as Americans. That's going to be the thing that's going to support your heart health, your brain health, your overall health. On this topic, you know, we mentioned exercise, we mentioned uh, socializing, all these things that are so important for general health and for brain health, but we have this pandemic going on, which has really limited our ability to exercise together, to meet in person. So um, Melissa, maybe we can start with you on, on how you've seen, what you've heard from people as far as how the pandemic is affecting these activities and, and even memory and thinking. So we have definitely seen at our center that the pandemic has had a real hit on people with Parkinson's, both physically and mentally. 
every day that I see people with Parkinson's and their families, I hear about how people really feel that they've worsened physically and worsened mentally. And we think that is probably because of decreased exercise, staying home more, less socialization, less activity. It's really affecting people's physical and mental health as well as their well-being. So maybe we can start with Dana and, and Pam and then Larry, you can tell us, but wh- what have you done to stay active, to see your family and friends and those sorts of things during the pandemic? What has helped you along? I think for, for Damon, we all heard, he loves to ride a bike and I'm going to get on mine. I just haven't done it yet because it's either too hot or too cold. Or you need a new knee. Well, I got a new knee, a knee replacement several months ago, and that's good. But now I have to have the other knee done. So, um, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do more exercise. But when you don't feel good, you know you've got to get out in the sun and run or whatever you're doing. It's Hard. But you know, and if you find yourself, you know, like we're talking about our little Tuesday night thing, our friends from Canada and Vermont that come down. This this is a we're in Florida, so it's a real you know seasonal state. No one's coming down. Everyone's scared to go out to eat. We're all in our mm-hmm. 60s and 70s, so it's really put a crimp on our social life. Everything's changed. You know, you're scared to do anything, but you can't remain totally isolated. And we rely so much on technology now, right? On the Zoom calls or on FaceTime or whatever it is, but that's not so easy either. Yeah, the, the phone is a, a is a big issue for Pam. And, uh, the phone. Um, you know, it's just, we're not. We're, I can't get it. I try. <laughs> try, she tries. To, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, I want to remain patient as I can, but you know, it's like eating well. If I'm at work all day and come when you go to the store, let's not go to the store. Let's have a frozen pizza and let's not walk. Let's just have another beer. You know, <laughs> I've often wondered what effect Parkinson's has or any major illness or age or whatever has on caregivers. Yeah, I think people cope with caregiving in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are good ways and bad ways. And I think it really supports or speaks to the need for a good support network, you know, to, to help you cope with what life throws for at you you know your own health your own life because it's so complicated we um, have great circle of friends you know, we, have, we have a great circle of friends we just can't see you know and that's a good point the pandemic affects not just the person with parkinson's and trouble exercising and getting out and socializing but that has a huge effect on caregiving harder to bring people to your house safely to give you the break for, for caregivers who need someone there 24 seven, that's been a huge challenge. You don't want to bring in strangers. You don't want to bring in people who aren't isolating. And so that really speaks to the effect that COVID has not just on the person with Parkinson's, but on the whole caregiving experience too. We'll, we'll go to the store and I said, well, Pam, I'll, put, I'll run in, you sit in the truck. You know, I'm sure she'd rather, you know, if it wasn't COVID, she would like to stroll down I love to shop. She loves. We eat a lot better when she's untethered shopping and a frozen pizza. I think Pam's been very fortunate to what in this experience twenty years, and we're fortunate to live close to the University of Florida. People are taking great care of us, and you know everyone's working hard. It's a it's a challenge, but it's um we're fortunate 
they have such great support. Yeah. Well, you have a great attitude, which which goes a long way. That optimism and and keeping positive where you can keep positive. But you also have a good team. It sounds like you're a good team. <laughs> but you also have a good team of care professionals around you. So your exactly. doctor, who's helping you manage that, you know, an occupational therapist can help you with some things around the house and certain activities and a support network, whether that's your friends or chatting online with other people who have Parkinson's or are care partners people with Parkinson's. So building this network and this support system around you is is critical. We talked a lot about what you can do to kind of boost your brain health and and stay healthy, eat well, exercise, socialize, all these things. But Melissa, if we can talk a little bit about what research is ongoing to get us better treatments, better tests for cognitive changes in Parkinson's. Sure. Well, I think, you know, one of the challenge of Parkinson's, but also one of the exciting things is all of the different kinds of research going on in Parkinson's. And so when we think about research in Parkinson's, researchers really are coming at it from all different directions. So when we think about memory and thinking, there are researchers, we call them preclinical. So clinical would be working with a patient, but this is more someone working with a lab trying to figure out, well, what exactly is it about Parkinson's that is causing the memory and thinking changes? What parts of the brain are involved? What chemicals are involved? Because we know it's not just dopamine. We can give you more dopamine and maybe help you physically, but that doesn't always have a huge impact on your memory and thinking. So those preclinical researchers are trying to figure out, well, what should we target? if we want to improve memory and thinking. What's happening in the brain with these problems? And then there are different drug studies, like you mentioned, and they're really looking at it from, again, different directions, different chemicals. So I mentioned earlier the rivastigmine that is FDA approved for use, that targets acetylcholine, which is one of the chemicals in the brain. But some of the other drugs that are, people are looking at are looking at dopamine. If we affect dopamine in different ways, could we affect memory and thinking? If we affect the brain chemical serotonin, could we affect memory and thinking? So kind of coming at it from different directions to see what we could help. Then we wanna think about non-drug strategies, diet, exercise, mental exercise, socialization. How can those non-drug strategies help memory and thinking? And then we still need to learn more about what is the experience of memory and thinking. When that starts, what should we expect to happen so that we can tell people what they should expect to happen? And so we really do need to come at it from all these different directions so that we can have different solutions. There's so much work, as, as you talked about, so much happening in this area, which is, is really promising and hopeful. What would you like people to know about cognitive changes, Pam? I would like them to know that it, it's not so bad. You just have to keep plugging along. Yeah, I, I think a sense of humor comes in handy. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> she, she lucked out there, didn't you, Pam? I, I, keep, I, th- I think about this sometimes, and I don't know. You know, Parkinson, my impression is a disease. You didn't do something like smoking at lung cancer. You didn't, this disease chose you. It didn't, you didn't choose it. That makes any sense, you know? Well, and certainly not consciously. I don't, I, I, was, I was never given that choice. <laughs> no, and wasn't either. Maybe yeah. you can eat right and live, you know, do right and still come down with Parkinson's. It's not, it's not, it's, it's not like action reaction, you know? It's just, you just have Parkinson's. 
people have said before, you know, I, I didn't choose Parkinson's. I never would choose Parkinson's, but I can choose what I do with it. Exactly. Right. And, and it sounds like you're sort of living proof of that. I just want to thank, uh, Pam and Dana for for being here and being in this brave space with us to talk about this. So uh, you're you're such a great example for so many people. So thank you for being here. And you too, Larry. Oh, thanks, Rachel. And and Dr. Armstrong, we really appreciate your insights. So uh, this was a a great conversation. And I know I learned some stuff here and hopefully other people took away at least a tidbit or two that they can apply at home. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. All right, before we go, Rachel, I'd, I'd like to really dive into some other resources that the Michael J. Fox Foundation may have for people who are looking to, to learn more about this. We have a lot of materials on this topic. One is a guide on cognitive changes in Parkinson's. It has strategies on how to boost your brain health, how to manage these changes, how to talk to family members and your doctors, how to build the right care team. It's a really comprehensive guide on this topic for people living with Parkinson's and their families. We also have an Ask the MD video and various blogs on the topic as well. Well, well, Rachel, thank you for your time and your experience and your insights and your knowledge and your laughter, because I always like it when you laugh at my jokes. Uh, <laughs> they don't pay wanna... me to do that either. Uh, no, no, there's no extra dollars for that. Um, <laughs> and we do want to thank uh, Acadia Pharmaceuticals for helping to support this episode of the podcast. For everyone at the Michael J. Fox Foundation who is here until Parkinson's isn't, thank you for listening. I'm Larry Gifford. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. It's the same handle at Parkinson's Pod. Be well. We'll talk to you next time. Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.